Hello, my friends. Thank you so much for tuning in to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. This show is for veterans, first responders, and their families, and honestly, for anybody who wants to recover from trauma. We are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible. Our vision is of a world where the path to recovery is clear. Please help with this mission by following and rating this show on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This simple action will help others find help for PTS injuries. Your help in promoting this podcast could be saving a life. And we're rolling live. Everything seems to be working better here. 2.0, Lakitra Houston, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Well, looking forward to it. Uh, let's get back to the first question. Being a recruiter, let's start there because it's fun, for Space Force. Now, of course, when Space Force first busted out, everybody was making fun of it. But really, it's just the natural progression of the Air Force. Like, of course, there's at some point in history, there has to be a Space Force. But what do they actually do? Like, what do you tell a new recruit that's walking through the door hoping to be a space cadet? <laughs> So what initially happened, I was an Air Force recruiter, and um, while I was recruiting, actually as a flight chief, I was over the recruiters, and they called us and said, hey, we're going to start recruiting for Space Force. And so at first, I thought it was a joke. I was like, there's no (laughs) such thing as Space Force, like whatever. Um, So they told us about Space Force, and we had limited information. So we didn't know what jobs were available. We didn't know anything. So it was one of those, like, as we, you know, we were starting out as we go, we just had to figure it out. Right. So, um, a lot of people come in like, Hey, is space force real? I'm like, yes, it is actually, you know, um, and it was a lot of jokes and, you know, people would do the star Trek sign and walk around and be like, Hey, space, you know, those little things. So it was fun. But, um, when people come in saying they want to be space force, um, and thank God now we have actual space force recruiters. So I won't do that. I don't do that part anymore. But, um, when they came in, it was like, Hey, you know, can I be an astronaut? Can I go to the moon? It was like all these questions. And I'm like, no, I, you know, this is not, you know, NASA, we don't have that yet. <laughs> but, um, what I did tell them is like, we did have a lot of Intel positions because it is mostly Intel, uh, with the space force. Um, geospatial intelligence, you know, those things. So it's a pretty good job and you have to score pretty well in the ASVAB as well. So it's pretty interesting watching it progress. Is that the only trades available? Because I mean, every force has a list of trades. Some of them are unique. Some of them are across like a medic could be a medic in the Navy, Air Force, Marines, Mm -hmm. whatever. Um, So in the, in the, how many different trades are there right now in Space Force? So right now I'm hundred since I got out I'm not sure. I just know right now I was focusing more on Intel and cybersecurity. So it could be anywhere from ten to fifteen right now because there's different parts of Intel and different parts of cybersecurity. So um right now I think it's that number, but I really don't have an approximate number because they're changing and they're evolving right now as we speak, so yeah. Well, if they take old guys, I'll, uh, I'm moving down to the States. I want to be in Space Force too. I think everybody does. <laughs> yes, it seems, it's pretty cool. It seems pretty cool. I think everybody would want to be a pilot. Do I get an X-Wing fighter? Be yes. Pretty- <laughs> you served a total of over 20 years with, yes. uh, with the Air Force. That is a full, full career. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, I didn't think I was going to make it in 20 years. I thought I was going to get out like at five or four or whatever, my first enlistment. But 
20 years is a big accomplishment that I didn't even realize. Um, and I've learned so much within those. And Lakeidra Houston's gone. Hopefully she comes back in. I don't know what happened. What is going on today, Lakeidra? Wow, wished. it's not good. What Did is, you do something bad? What is, <laughs> what, what is going on? Well, you're back, so I'm happy about yeah. it. But 20 years was a, a, a big accomplishment to, to, to be there that long. Yes, it was. And I enjoyed it, um, you know, as a cop and then as a recruiter for 10 years. So it was a lot, different varieties, learning um, different trades. And then developing as a leader was the amazing part of being in the military for that long. So, yeah. And now you're doing a lot of work with military transition. So maybe we should start there. Uh, what mm-hmm. drew you to that? What what had you think, you know, uh, transitioning is tough and <laughs> I'm going to be the person that's going to help people with it. What, uh, what drew, drove you to do that? So honestly, um, I went on LinkedIn and that's how I first um, kind of looked at every, you know, started my um, uh, the page. And so I went on there and I started seeing these uh, transitioning like coaches or leaders. But when I reached out, nobody was answering or responding back. So, um, you know, it was like, well, you know, I'm, I'm hearing them say these great things. So I'm going to go ahead and actually be about action. Like I'm going to go out there and help others. So what I did was I took notes on my transition, what things that I've, you know, I learned and I wrote them down and I start, you know, helping others with that. And it was kind of like, you know, um, trying to find purpose after you got the military for 20 years. I mean, this became my purpose, trying to help others transition. So just making, you know, making connections and the lessons I've learned help others with those as well. And why is military transition difficult? Like what are people facing when they get out? Emotions. Um, It's more emotions and it's identity. Um, The thing about it is when we're in the uniform, not even, you know, 20, 30 years or maybe 10, 15, it's been your life your whole time since you've, you know, your adult life, you spend your adult life in the military, majority of us have. So it's trying to figure out who you are because it's we get into this place where we wear the uniform um, or we don't wear the uniform, we let the uniform wear us. And so it's that mindset of like, hey, you know, this is my identity. I'm Sergeant so-and-so. Or I'm this person. You you lose who you are. So that's a lot that I've seen um, and expectations that when they get out, you know, they're supposed to have a $200,000 job or something like that, you know, because I was a colonel or you know, a a chief or whatever. And so you have to bring people down to understand like, hey, you're still that leader, but you're starting a new chapter. And so some of those things that you've discovered in your previous chapter is not going to transition over. So let's start over. Let's, you know, relax. Let's understand the process and I'm going to help you through it. So that's a lot of the issues. Do you think some branches of the military are more difficult to transition into civilian life than other branches? Oh, yes. I'm going to be 100% honest. I've had more issues with Army and Marines when it comes to transitioning. Yeah, of course. Um, unfortunately. <laughs> and why do you think that is? Um, with the Army, a lot of them are not privy to a lot of informa- information that the other branches have. Um, and it's out there, but it's hard to, I would say their leadership's not allowing them to transition properly. It's like you're a soldier to the day you get out. And it's like, no, you know, I'm, I need some time to get away from being a soldier and to focus on being a civilian. And so I see that they're being held back, you know, by their leaders, unfortunately. So it's sad. 
Well, I, I think a big chunk of it is that Army is the most unlike civilian life. I think it's the biggest leap between one lifestyle and another. Uh, I mean, all have discipline, you know, all uh, know how to do drill and stand up straight and salute and all that. But Army is the most life and death environment of the three branches, uh, right. Army and Marines. And we don't have Marines in Canada. So, <laughs> but I was an Army guy, so I can speak with some uh, some degree of experience. But yeah. the because it is most unlike civilian life and we have the highest expectations of each other because when you're a ground pounder, uh, you are truly relying on the people on each side of you to, to do the right thing or die. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and you know, everything is life and death, even on a live fire range. I mean, it's pretty hairy. And mm-hmm. uh, so I think it's the biggest difficulty in transition because it's the biggest gap in in civilian experience um being in a firefight or any of that stuff uh, that is usually the domain of army and marines you know you just don't find that in other places of course in the navy's got the seals but that's you know they're unique and uh, but any of the actual operators that's gonna be the biggest splash of water in the face i find that people that transition the easiest are those that um uh, have a spouse, so they always have that one foot in the civilian world. When they come home, they they have uh, that and and stories from the spouse about their work, wherever they're working, and their work stories, and so it keeps them grounded in reality to some degree. But uh, for those that are single and they don't even have that, which was the case with me when I got out, there was no link to the civilian world at all. So uh, talk about a fish out of water. Does any of that ring true uh, from your experience? It does. I mean, you know, being, because I was a military spouse too at one point. So it, uh, you know, it is a, you know, civilian life and understanding that as well um, does help. So I 100% believe that. Um, But again, it's, it goes back to um, even me being single. Um, it was, I kind of looked for like, okay, I'm transitioning. Like, let me prepare myself. Um, even though I didn't have the, you know, initially didn't have the civilian, you know, um, wasn't really privy to civilian, uh, you know, style later on. It was me more of like, okay, I have to take it. I have to go look and actually talk to other people and I have to do it myself. But it, it is harder uh, for you know, singles, but also for those higher people who've been in who just don't understand their purpose. I've seen that a lot. Like, what is my purpose? I've led troops for so long. I've guided, you know, people. I've been on deployment. So what am I going to do when I get out? You know, and that lack of um, camaraderie of, you know, you have a team, one team, one fight, right? When you're in the military, you have each other's back. So when you get out, you kind of lose that. So those are a few things, you know, that I see. It's very interesting. It's lonely and it's insecure, you know. Um, I just saw a post on Facebook from uh, from a fella. I was like, anybody else have trouble walking in the bush without a weapon? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Hands up. Yeah, yeah, I I remember, you know, uh, the first time I'm with a group of, uh, it was university students, and we're going for a hike in the mountains with a big backpack on, and I was just like, well, I need a rifle, man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> like we're, we're, we're on a trail with a line of people and I got heavy weight on my back. It felt so, I just so naked. It's like, where's my rifle? Did I forget my white rifle? It's uh, 
yeah, it, 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 yeah. it's a tough feeling. It's a tough mm-hmm. transition because, you know, mm-hmm. that's the one thing you don't lose. You, I don't care if you're wearing pants, but have your rifle. <laughs> yes. I, I look around. I'm like, okay, when I'm on hiking trails, like, okay, what's going on? Like, I'm always observing. My mom's like, are you okay? I'm like, I'm good, but I just have, <laughs> just like I'm used to having it. Yeah, so it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, well, I I do have one that fits in a backpack now. It's real compact, a Keltec KSG, a little 12-gauge shotgun. Perfect thing for the trail. Oh, oh yeah. Yes. Yeah, now, <laughs> I know. It's probably shocking to you to think Canadians are allowed to have guns. So, yeah. Yeah, some we are. We just can't have a pistol because somehow pistols are scary. But uh, you can carry a shotgun oh, wow. or a rifle. Uh, oh, it just, wow, that's interesting. It's just freaking out the hippies. That's the that's the problem. You don't want to do that because they get all upset. So mine fits in a backpack, and you can't see it. And but uh, I got drills with my kids. So uh, bear drill. I, I bend down. They grab it out, and we we practice it for an immediate action drill. But uh, yeah, I, I don't want to be facing a grizzly with a stick. <laughs> right. Definitely. <laughs> not a good time. Not a not a big Canadian grizzly. No, thank you. Wow. <laughs> You are involved in so many different things. Um, let's talk about Key. That's one of your websites. So mm-hmm. uh, keep elevating yourself. What's mm-hmm. uh, So what's that about and what's the work that you do with Key? So Key is a lot of transitioning military and spouses. And it's a group that I found in San Antonio when I was there. Um, but it's a huge transitioning uh, community, which is amazing. And a lot of them are recruiters. So if you're kind of looking for a job, you always want to go to the key, <laughs> the key, uh, the key. And they're on Instagram, um, Facebook, too, and um, LinkedIn. But um, the thing about them, though, I've learned so much during this process because I was so scared to ask for help. I didn't want to be vulnerable. Um, I thought that, you know, I made it 20 years. I don't need to ask anybody for anything. I'm going to figure this out. And so being with them, it kind of humbled me. And it was more of, hey, you know, each month we would meet up. We would talk about what we've learned. We would also discuss um, and even go to brunch and those things um, pre-COVID. And then right now we're doing those things. But we would go eat and just talk about the mental part because it does. It affected me mentally and affected a lot of us mentally. Um, And a lot of us were losing jobs. So think about, you know, you've been at the military for two or three years and you haven't had a job. Um, So the founder of it, he's, you know, he went through that and he kind of like, hey, we're going to help you find jobs. We're going to help you with your resume. We're going to help you with your interview skills. So it was good where we could just, you know, be a team and and help each other out. So that's why I joined that. And I love it. I love it ever since. What are some of the key skills that military people transitioning into civilian life typically don't have? What's the, the biggest top three hurdles that uh of things that they have to learn so that they can function without it being a cold bucket of ice water in the face so i would say interview skills is huge um when you interview you know you're promoting yourself and so as as you know military we want to say we as a team we as a team so it's that understanding you know you're promoting yourself um the second thing is probably patience a lot of we want to just jump in there and say, I got to have a job right now. I got to do this. I got to do this and I'll take whatever. And so it's, it's that having patience in your transition. And I would say the, um, the third thing would probably mm, understanding probably more of the benefit side of it. Um, a lot of people don't know, even though we talk to the VA, a lot of people do not understand 
what benefits you get once you get out. So it's not understanding certain things um, with transitioning. So, yeah, it's a lot. There's especially infantry folks or any of the mm-hmm. combat folks. They, um, they believe that I don't have any transferable skills. And uh, you know, looking at it in a very literal way, it's like, yeah, you're right. You don't. Shooting people is just not uh, over, <laughs> not one of those marketable skills out there for the rest of the world. That's right. uh, pretty, pretty specific to military <laughs> and, and to contractors. Um, mm-hmm. poking, marksmanship skills, uh, not overly applicable. But um, <laughs> what would you say to them, though, about the non-hard skills, like the, the other parts of their military service that is completely transferable and actually very attractive to employers. So when it comes with infantry, um, I really think the leadership and attention to detail, those are the skills that I take from infantry. Like, you know, you have a mission, you know how to get to it, you know what to do to get to that mission. So to me, it's like those details. Look at your leadership. Even though you may not have certain skills, you can get those skills once you get out. Like, it's okay. Um, But Certain things are marketable. Um, Certainly if you don't want to be a cop, you know, you can do other things besides that. But yes, take your leadership. Take your, um, even though you've shot weapons, take that attention to detail. And then when you do your resume, make sure it has those leadership skills and make sure it's broken down into civilian terms. You know, there's ways we can can make it work. But um, just make sure, take those, you know, put leadership on there. Put, you know, those things that's going to grab whoever you want to work for. But they're... We all have skills. (laughs) Jocko Willing talks a lot about extreme ownership. And Mm -hmm. in the combat arms world, there's no room for excuses. And there's Mm -hmm. no room for passing the buck. And even if you tried, you would just be shunned anyway. It's like, yeah, we all know it was you. You know, you you can't really pass the buck in in those circumstances as much as you would probably like to sometimes. You -hmm. you put up your hand and you take it on the chin and say, yeah, that was me. I screwed that up good. And that sense of ownership that's essential is so rare in the real world. And, And I think that is one of those things, ownership and not passing the buck, um, integrity, you know, it's tougher mm-hmm. and tougher to find every year. People are less and less um, courageous when it comes to integrity. So yeah. I, I think those are tough to put on a uh, resume, but it's somehow that's got to be packaged in a way that's like, look, this is what you're getting. Somebody that mm-hmm. actually tells you the truth. When they screw up, they say so. They put up their hand and say, yeah, that was me. Mm-hmm. No excuses. Yeah. And uh, the ability to improvise, adapt, and overcome, to to problem solve, to just figure it out. And uh, <laughs> when failure is not an option because it's, you know, do or die, literally, you know, that, that is very translatable to the civilian world. Is that also some of the stuff that you uh, talk, talk to uh, people when they're transitioning? These are the uh, similar topics that come up? Yes, it is. Um I mean, even though those things can't be on your uh, resume, always when I, I always review resumes. But one thing I tell them, your resume is just kind of like that ticket, you know, to, you know, to get to that interview. It's like a little ticket because to me as a, as a recruiter now, as a corporate recruiter, 
resumes, I under I see military resumes all the time. I'm like, that person's military. So I kind of help them with that. But I think that interview, you're going to, all those skills that you just talked about, that interview is what, when you're going to talk about that, the integrity, what do you do? Because we're going to ask you like, hey, you know, those smart questions, like, how did you get over this? What did you, you know, um, how did you and your team get over this? What was your, how do you, when somebody messes up, what do you do? If you mess up, how do you face it? You know, we want to know who the person is. So integrity is really huge. Um, but that interview is one. That's why I work with interviews. Even though you can't show, showcase your skills on the resume, that interview is going to be where you're going to put everything out there. So, yes. What are some of the concerns of employers um, where, where where they're like they believe military maybe is dangerous or like what are some of the unfounded concerns uh, where people would not want to hire veterans? I'm happy you asked that because that is one thing I've learned. <laughs> Being out here, the first thing that I've heard that veterans are crazy and it's among a lot of big corporations. And so they're thinking when they see veterans, they automatically think PTSD. Yeah. They think anger issues, those things. Um, that is the biggest thing that I see. Really nothing else is just that. And also, um, actually, I, I'll say this. Some people have an issue with um, leaders, you know, the, how the leadership, how we are. There's there's something about when you're a veteran, you have this, you kind of have a confidence. You have a different uh, aura about yourself as a veteran. And so some companies are intimidated or some people, employees are intimidated when they see a veteran come in, they're on time, they're getting, you know, bonuses, everybody's loving them because, you know, we're disciplined. So those are a lot of things we see there. I mean, you have people who don't like us and you have people who are very jealous of us. So, uh, you know, uh, I was in my forties, like Kedra, before I realized that, uh, that we tend to intimidate people, As, yes. you know, especially if you're like infantry mm-hmm. or, and have a tour or two, or some of my friends have eight, and uh, people start doing the dick measuring, you know, for lack of a better term. It's uh, mm-hmm. uh, people that are insecure in their masculinity or the, the tough guy status, stuff yeah. like that. And they start comparing and uh, telling you mm-hmm. why they're tough, too. It's like, I never told you I was tough. I never said that, you know, nor do I, you know, it, this is not part of the conversation. So why are you challenging me on this? And. But um, it it happens a lot. And I think as uh, also a part of transition for people to realize, believe it or not, uh, even though you're super nice, you might be intimidating people. Uh, Mm -hmm. Part of it is the directness where we, the the no bullshit, (laughs) the the no bullshit attitude. And um, when somebody says something that's either wishy-washy or or flat out untrue, we're like, no. <laughs> What's the real answer? That was not the question. Give me the answer. And yeah. um, if you don't learn to tame that down, because that does not fly in the civilian world at all. Mm-hmm. That, <laughs> that is so true. <laughs> yeah, it don't but fly. We, yeah, and sometimes I try not to be direct. It's it's um, you know hiring veterans. Being the person I am now that hire veterans is hard. When you hear somebody's like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to hire a veteran. You're like, what? Like, why? What's your issue? You know? And so it's, it's that some things, you know, you know that they have an issue just because they just have one. You know, like the comment you said, you know, they just want to see who's stronger than the other one. I'll just say that. Yeah, there you <laughs> go. <laughs> yeah. 
But yeah, it's it's interesting. Very, very interesting. Now, getting into the other stuff. Uh, as I said, you're involved with all kinds of uh, of advocacy, and um, including the tough stuff. Mm-hmm. So suicide prevention, resiliency, and sexual assault um, survivors. So let's talk about MST, military sexual trauma. I've only covered it on the show. Uh, 221 episodes I've got, two or three on military sexual trauma. There's not a lot of people that are willing to put their hand up and say, yeah, that was me. And not a lot that um, are willing to tell their story. Mm-hmm. but it is a big story and it happens bloody everywhere. There's more and more that's coming out in Canada uh, about sexual misconduct with higher ups, which is the worst because you are the most disempowered to do anything about it and the most intimidated to do anything about it when it's a mm-hmm. colonel or a general or you know uh, somebody right at the top and they are the least accountable unfortunately, because who do you go to when it's the boss's boss that's, that's doing it? How big, how widespread is military sexual trauma, uh, sexual exploitation within the military, uh, in the, in the U S? Um, it is huge. And I think the story with Vanessa Guillen, when, you know, she was missing from Fort hood and they found her body. Um, and they found out that she, you know, had reported somebody um, and Asia, it's, a, it's a lot of, oh my God, it's so many people, but it's a lot of people that are coming out because um, we felt voiceless because we are brand new into the military. And these are, you know, people who've been in 2015, you know, plus years and they're doing this to us. So um, it is very big. A lot of people are stepping out. Even male sexual trauma is coming out, which I'm happy, you know, that is coming out, uh, yeah. you know. So, and I have a good friend who shares his story. So I'm happy that it's coming out. It's just slow. You know, we've been talking about it here for probably the past, I think, 2015. It came out, but I think it started hitting harder. But it still bothers me because, even 2015 to now, there's not that much progress. You just have more people sharing their story. But when are we going to hold start holding people accountable? You know, we really don't. So, it, unfortunately, it's sad, but it's coming out. Um, we have suicides. We have, you know, ki- I mean, killings. So it's 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 affecting a lot of people, and it's finally being heard. But I just needed to speed up. I really do. Yeah. It's being disempowered is one of the mm-hmm. biggest things. Feeling helpless to do anything about it is one of the worst parts about it. Um, the shame, of course, uh, which is the stigma with anything. Um, shame is the core of stigma. And if you are ashamed to, to, to put your hand up, and worse yet, if you have sanctuary trauma, because you put your hand up, you went to the whoever it is that's supposed to be able to have your back in this situation, and they don't. You don't put your hand up twice, typically. Correct. And then you're alone, mm-hmm. and you're isolated, and mm-hmm. with, with nowhere to turn. And that's where alcoholism, drugs, suicide. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, um, so what are the solutions? You know what? Um, when you talk about this, so I'm going to tell you a little bit 
about my story. Um, yeah. So I was one of those people that didn't say anything. And I had a good friend of mine. We, you know, just met each other and she was by the door when my assault had happened. And I walked out the door and it was a higher leader. And she says, do not say anything. If you say anything, they're going to kick you out of the military. So I'm like, oh, my God, like, I can't say nothing. Like, don't. She was like, don't say anything because she was getting uh, she was on her way out. The, they were kicking her out because they listened to him over her. So to me, that kind of took my voice away where I'm like, I'm definitely not going to say anything because if I go home right now, I have nothing. You know, I can't go back home and deal with, you know, family issues that I had. So it wasn't an option. Me saying I, I couldn't I couldn't say anything. Um, so to me, it it left me. I, it, I was hurt. You know, I was, I felt voices. I, I felt I wasn't empowered. So I turned to drinking. I drunk like probably 10 years of my career. And I don't remember half of it because I was drunk majority of the time. Um, and then when my suicide attempt happened in 2009, that was me saying, you know what? I'm not going to let this guy control my life. You know, after I attempted, um, I did have somebody come talk to me and said, Hey, I, I can see you. I know something's going on with you. Um, and I need you to sit here. Like I need, we need you. Don't, don't kill yourself. And so I think that opened my eyes. And at that time I was a single mother. I didn't care that I had a child. I just wanted to end the pain. That's all I was concerned about in the pain and just, you know, be okay. Um, so yeah, it, it, it did something to me, but when he sat down and talked to me, um, it helped me. It released a lot of things. And I still didn't tell the military until 2012. So I decided to get off base counseling because I knew stepping forward, I would get kicked out. Um, still to this day, I was still scared. So I would say connect with people who are who have been in your shoes. Definitely. That's helped me. My MST circle. Oh, my God. I don't know what I would do without that team. Connect with those people. And when you're ready to share your story, share your story. Definitely. But it's okay not to. It, it is okay. 100% okay. Um, but I would say heal. Focus on healing. There's things that I do and there's things that other people do to heal. You know, whether it's meditating in the morning, whether it's just, you know, prayer or whatever you can do. Just find something that helps. But I think having a support system is the best thing. So... And what is the accessibility of support systems for the MST crowd? So you'll see us everywhere. Like we're mostly, I mean, we're on Facebook. We have an MST actual uh, Facebook page. We have uh, Instagram, you know, hashtag MST survivors. And you connect with so many people, um, whether it's uh, She Vets It, Operation Tango. It's so many. Um, it's another, it's so many, it's, even though you have Operation Tango, there's, <laughs> but there's, this one's Operation Tango Romeo. <laughs> yeah. So there's, there's a few and, um, there's a, you know, vets counseling veterans, they're good and they do the male MST and the female MST. So it's just, just reach out. Even me, like just contact me and I can get, find you, you know, the people that you want to connect with, but don't be ashamed. You know, don't be ashamed. What do you think the Stop. secret sauce is of peer support? Uh, that was certainly, a big part of my healing journey. I mean, <laughs> which isn't over, that's still going. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, peer support has been big f 
for me and for many, many people. What do you think the secret sauce is there? Why is peer support helpful and healing from your perspective? It's because you're dealing with somebody who's been through the same thing you've been through, who's been there. Um, And when you go to a counselor, they really don't understand. But peer support, we understand. We we, we go through the emotions together. It's just a togetherness. Um, and then also we help each other through the healing process. We hold each other accountable. You know, hey, you're not feeling good. I'm going to come to your house and I'm going to make sure you're okay because I can't lose you. So it's that understanding, hey, we've been through your shoes. We're here to support you and we don't, you're not going to go through this alone. So that's to me, it's very important. Earlier on, we talked about the isolation caused by Mm -hmm. any trauma really but military sexual trauma in particular it just makes you so isolated and alone and scared and powerless and a properly run safe peer support group counterbalances all of that Mm -hmm. because you go from a state of being completely disconnected and disempowered to be completely connected and completely empowered Mm-hmm. And and that's, that's the difference. What are some of the do's and don'ts of a peer support group? Would you say? Um, I say for the do's uh, of a peer support group is just make sure you listen. Um, that's the biggest thing because um, we don't want to put our issues on other people. So there are times when if somebody has a story, I have to listen. I have I can't put myself in that. Um, and then also just being patient. You know, don't you know? Just be patient. Um, with people who are healing, you can't rush anybody's healing. Don't rush it. So be patient. Um, and then I'll say accountability. Continue, you know, making sure you're checking on them. Look at the signs. Sometimes we don't like to talk about our signs or we don't we don't uh, talk about things. So like the isolation, just look at those signs. That's what peers are supposed to do, you know, those signs. And just kind of, you know, just be there. <laughs> be there, any capacity. Um, what I would say don't. Um, is do not judge. And that was the issue. I had another peer support, but do not judge anybody for what they've been through because everybody's emotions and what they've been through is different from yours. And you may not, you may not feel the same way they do. So don't be judgmental. Sometimes people are being judgmental and they don't realize that's what they're doing. And they, just, if you, if you called them on it, they'd be like, I'm not being judgmental. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you are a douchebag. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's exactly what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, so, so what would be an example of that where somebody is being judgmental, uh, but maybe they're not aware that that's what they're doing. So I've heard the, well, what did you have on? You know, <laughs> oh, it, yeah, that one was so bad. What you were know, you wearing? Did you correct? Oh, right. So it puts it back on the on the victim. You know, oh. it does. It puts them back. Yeah. And so it's yeah, I think that that probably kills me the most. I hear that the most out of everything um, or, you know, you should have uh, had, had shouldn't have been drinking that much or you should have been watching who you're around or so it's more victim shaming. That's that's what really hits home that's what really hurts us a lot i think my favorite is uh well something like that happened to me and i'm okay R- oh yes i forgot Brutal. about that <laughs> yeah or the term oh it will be okay well we don't want to hear that you know honestly i did i didn't and a few of my friends we didn't want to hear it's going to be okay or that doesn't sound that hear, bad it doesn't but you know what Oh, no, no, that's, I'm saying that's one of the horrible things to say. That doesn't yeah. sound that bad. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. A, just a shit thing to say. Yes, 
Yes. So you don't say that. You, that's why I say, you know, we have to sit back and listen um, unbiasedly. We have to understand everybody doesn't, you know, we don't heal that we haven't been through the same thing, even though we may have been the same thing, but we don't go through it the same way. So, yeah. Well, <laughs> and the uh, people that have listened to every single episode I've ever done, I apologize to them in advance, but I'm going to say it again because they've all heard it about 10 times. Um, it, you can have a thousand people going through what you think is the same experience, but I have a thousand different experiences because sure. you, even if you're standing right beside somebody and you, and you were both went through the, through what you thought was the exact same experience, it is not the same experience because you're a different person. So you are experiencing it differently through a different filter based on mm-hmm. everything that is, made you a human being up to that point uh, from, from birth being raised, every experience you've ever had all creates a filter from which we see the world and we all see the world a little bit differently. If that wasn't true that we wouldn't have uh, uh, such big food menus. Everybody would right. like the same thing. Everybody would like broccoli and cheese. I mean, you know, but we, we all have different tastes because we all have a different perception of the world around us. Right. And uh, so you can empathize with somebody who had a similar experience, but it's never the same experience. And just because you think you're okay with something similar doesn't mean that they, they should be okay with a similar experience. And you're probably not okay. You just think you are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it still hits. It's still like when you say you're, you know, you're still healing. I still feel that too. Cause I always get the, why didn't you report it? Are you sure, you know, those things happen? Like maybe you thought of it, you know, or Maybe they were, it didn't really happen like you thought. Or they were just joking around. Where's your sense of humor? Correct. You know, um, just, <laughs> oh, can I say the story? Nope, I can't say it. But something was said to my wife yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that Like over the top. And it took me a second. Like, I got mad. It's like, I want to go punch him. Oh, he's just a little old man. Uh, I still want to punch him. <laughs> and, um, but the... What I said is like, after it kind of settles, that is straight up sexual harassment. And she's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> that is what that is. Mm-hmm. And um, if you think that, that it's just a joke to comment on somebody's backside or uh, it, uh, stuff like that, no, that's, that's not a joke. That's, that's, that's sexualizing somebody in a work environment. Mm-hmm. And not okay. Because this is the work environment, you know, and it's uh, especially when there's a power differentiation. This is what uh, makes child exploitation so horrific. It's the power differential. You're mm-hmm. you're a predator with somebody that has absolutely no ability to defend themselves, uh, nor to understand the situation in its fullness. Now, in the uh, with military sexual trauma, the latter is not true, but the former is you're you're a predator with somebody that really doesn't have a voice and really can't say a lot mm-hmm. uh with it without they have to choose between their career and um and their own personal safety and it, it, that is just the worst to be the human being that would uh is the predator right and i've learned you know when you the you know the joke that somebody said you know or talking about their backside I've learned to stand up for that now because, you know, growing up, I used to hear those things. And um, 
then didn't find out that the, then later found out that those people who were saying those things had, you know, had messed with people in the past or had sexual assault to somebody. So now it's more of, you know, you know, my family member may say, oh, he's just old. He's just being dirty. No, you have to say something because they think that behavior is okay. And if we don't stop it and, you know, I won't say prevent them, but if we don't stop it or confront it right then and there, they're going to keep on doing it and it may get worse, you know? And so trauma, sexual assault is, is happening to me multiple times, unfortunately. And I was a child, you know, that been sexual assaulted by a family member. So this is continuous, you know what I mean? But I learned at the end of the day that I'm going to have to fight for it. And I'm going to make sure those small comments that people say, like, I'm going to nip that in the bud. I'm not, you're not going to, no, you're not going to do that because I may prevent somebody else from getting sexually assaulted, you know? So it's, yeah. Sorry, I got a little heated on that one. <laughs> no, no, it's good. And uh, because it's the type of thing that has to be, that has to be said. Uh, sunlight mm-hmm. is the best disinfectant. And if somebody comments on your backside, you go, hey, not okay. Right. And it's most, imp- like, it's important for the women to stand up for themselves, but it's even it's equally or even more important for the guy standing next to the guy making the comment to go, dude, shut the hell up. What are yeah. you doing? Have some respect. Maybe cuff him in the back of the head. You know, yeah. that, that is what has to happen for, for the dudes to be calling each other out on it. Or um, uh, somebody is looking at your boobs while they're talking to you. You know, mm-hmm. um, to be clipped upside the the head and say, dude, you know, have some self-control and, um, it has to be called out. People Mm -hmm. have to be called out in real time. And that's leadership, whether it be somebody of the same rank or one of your subordinates that you're sorting out. Um, nobody should be getting a free pass for that type of behavior. Correct. That's true. hundred percent true. So it's, it's something that we have to do. And I'm happy you said the leaders. I mean, in the military, certainly as a cop, oh, being a female cop, and sometimes I had 20 males with me, and there's probably two of us um, at that time. But just the comments that were said to me as a new, you know, new person in the military, um, I was waiting for somebody else to be like, hey, does anybody hear this? Are you going to stop this person? Like, but it just didn't happen. And when you say something, it's, oh, she's, you know, she took it wrong or, you know, they were just joking, like you said. So definitely call it out, everybody, men, women, whatever, who's ever there, call it out. Because if you don't call it out, you're basically accepting it. So, Well, it's, it's bullying. Correct. And it's, but it's bullying with a sexual twist. Correct. And I, I don't know what, how else to, to, to call it, but you, mm-hmm. it, it, you're right, though. It is so rare that anybody ever calls it out. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to share a story with you that I've never shared on the show before, but it's actually probably my favorite story. And way back from 92, there was a guy in our battalion, short, fat, had no business being in the infantry, but, um, but still, and I was no fan of his either, but I can't stand a bully because mm-hmm. I was bullied horribly as a kid. And that's why I learned to fight. <laughs> it was the only way I could uh, stop the bullying, break a couple noses. But um, the the big guy uh, in our in our unit was as as this guy was uh, walking walking through. 
had a couple of comments for him and everybody chuckled for the first comment and then he does it again and then the, the it's a bit of a chuckle but it's a bit like ooh that's a bit awkward that was that was a little on the mean side and then he does it again and then I stood up I said okay Larry I think he's got the point that's enough now Larry was six foot three I'm five nine I was 160 pounds maybe and he was easy 210 and uh, everybody was shocked. And and from there, like, we never did come to blows. And he was actually pretty impressed that I called him out in front of everybody. But that is where people have to be like that more often. When you see the bullying and you see it's, like, from the awkward chuckles, everybody knew it was wrong by the third mm-hmm. one. You know, the first one might have been a bit funny, but come on, this is badgering, it's wrong. Even though I don't like the guy either, this is wrong. Mm-hmm. And um, it's my favorite story of myself because I stood up. Mm-hmm. Now, had I not stood up, I'd be remembering that for the rest of my life going, oh my God, I wish I would have stood up. Mm-hmm. And then you don't know what kind of effect it could have had on him. You know what I mean? You probably helped him feel empowered in that moment. You know, somebody actually has my back because, you know, just, just being that. So I'm happy that you did that. I'm happy you did that. And you don't know. I mean, that that could have been the difference with him. It's like, oh, geez, maybe, you know, maybe I deserve, if somebody else is going to stand up for me, maybe I can stand up for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, who knows what the effect could have been. But the biggest one was the bully himself, uh, who, I mean, we get along now. But uh, the, the bully himself checked himself, and he never did it again. Nice. Even though... Uh, <laughs> He was threatening to fight me for that entire exercise of six weeks, but, uh, which I, I wasn't worried about. I'm like, fine, let's go. But yeah. uh, I don't like, I really don't care. Let's fight. But, yeah. um, uh, but when we shook hands and made up over it, I won the guy's respect. Mm-hmm. But he, and because he, he was forced to look inside and go, hmm, yeah, maybe I should uh, correct my course a little bit. Yeah, that's good. I guess the, the moral of the story is everybody wins if you stand up. Correct. Yes, you know, I like it. Everybody wins if you stand up. Yes, definitely. Well, we've covered a fair bit here. Uh, let's talk about Dateline NBC. That's pretty freaking cool. Yeah. So I um, I was in my two, I was 18 years, and I had saw um, the story about Vanessa Guillen. Um, and it, it bothered me and I spoke out, uh, on Instagram and I just blasted everybody, um, because I think her death and one of the ladies I put into the military, her being uh, sexually assaulted and then kicked out and then put into an institution. Um, I was going through so much at that time and it triggered me. It triggered me and it made me angry. So I put this long post on uh, Instagram and I called out leaders, all leaders, um, and said, we need to hold people accountable. Like, stop brushing it under rug. Let's do something. So there's a guy who reached out to me in Daylight NBC, and he said, hey, I saw your post, Justice for Vanessa, and I want you to go on the show. And um, I said, well, I'm active duty. I can't go on the show. So what they did was they had me read um, what I posted with a few uh, other active duty uh, women. And we, we said it in the Daylight NBC, um, you know, special for her so it I felt so empowered just 
understanding that I wasn't alone, that I was the only one that didn't share my story. Um, and I just, it, it just did something different to me. And so it just gave me that push to keep on fighting because we're actually being heard, you know, even though I wasn't heard at the, you know, when it first happened, I didn't say anything, but I actually was like, look, I'm being heard. So let me, you know, change that. But yeah, it was, it was amazing. Everything that you've been through from mm-hmm. being molested as a child, uh, military sexual trauma and mm-hmm. uh, losing your sister, like all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a part of you that is almost grateful for the trauma? I know it's a weird question, but I, I'm asking for a reason because it has empowered you to be able to connect and empathize with so many others. Mm-hmm. It, it honestly has. Um, there was, I learned so many lessons from it, uh, from trauma. And it, even though I always question like, why me? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, it was more like, you know what? I want you to be the voice. You know, I'm, I'm a spiritual person. I'm not religious, but I'm, I'm spiritual. So it was more of me like, you have to go out and share your story. Even though you didn't share it when, it's, when it happened, but sharing it now, people need to hear it. There are a lot of people like you. So go out there and reach the masses. Talk to, you know, everybody. So um, I'm happy it happened because now I can connect with people. When you mention empathy, it taught me that as well. Um, so it's just, it's beautiful. I mean, it's a horrible event, but the lessons I learned from it, you know, and the healing that I have, you know, been through, it's, it's been amazing. So yeah, I'm happy in a way that I've kind of went through it because I understand, um, and I can help others. It's the dividing line being able to, Mm -hmm. and it's tough and I get why people can't do it. Being almost grateful for their trauma. Um, but I am grateful for mine. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it, uh, like yourself, I have a very similar trauma timeline starting mm-hmm. as a child, but mm-hmm. if I didn't have that, I couldn't do this show the way I do it. I couldn't mm-hmm. connect to people the way I connect to them because mm-hmm. I can put up my hand and say me too, to pretty much anything you can throw out there. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. um, that has made me a better human being, a more understanding person. And the first step is understanding yourself and how all these things have affected you in your life. And then you have the choice. Do what you're doing, which is use it as a gift, as a something that makes you stronger and wiser so that you can have share the gift of healing with others through your experience by, by sharing it, by healing yourself. You can heal others if you recover out loud. Right. Or, you can be a professional victim and mm-hmm. that, and that can be your identity where mm-hmm. um, I am the victim of, and then here's your laundry list of things that, that have happened yeah. to you. And that's a miserable life and helps nobody. Mm-hmm. But that's the dividing line. What do you think? I definitely think that's true. Um, Helping others, that's definitely, it, it, it's amazing and it's freeing. Um, and, you know, you're saying being a victim, I, it was the whole mindset was, you know, I am, it was my fault. You know, I felt like I was going to be a victim for 15, 20 years because I kept on saying it's my fault. I did something wrong. Even as a kid, which is, I'm innocent. You know, I, I didn't know. I didn't know what was going on. So it was when I far, first start healing was when I said it is not my fault. I would not give 
I would not be labeled a victim. I'll be labeled a survivor. I think that opened me up more. So it's really definitely understanding. You don't have to be a victim. You can be a survivor. Don't blame yourself for what happened, but be willing to heal. And so that's, I love that part of it. But yes. Being kind to the younger version of yourself. You know, mm-hmm. uh, when you ask people, like when uh, I was molested by a family member, it started at the mm-hmm. age of seven. Yeah. And why would there be shame? I was fucking seven, mm-hmm. seven years old. And uh, as an adult, if I was to look at a little seven-year-old, you know, uh, I wouldn't blame them for anything because they're seven. Nothing's their Correct. fault. They're seven. Correct. You know, and so it's easy to have uh, that empathy and kindness for another child to see yourself as that and go, wait a second, <laughs> that really wasn't my fault. You know, mm-hmm. I'm really not, uh, I should not feel shame for this because, mm-hmm. you know, if it happened to another seven-year-old, um, you'd just be like, oh my God. And you would be kind and protective of that child. And that's how right. we have to see ourselves by being outside of ourselves and seeing ourselves as, um, as just another seven-year-old or whatever the age of the trauma was. Mm-hmm. And so mom, I was six and oh, Jesus. the last therapist I had, um, she told me, she's like, write a letter to yourself. If you could write a letter to your younger self, what would you say? So that, tr- that was, I've never heard that from a therapist and that like, did something to me and it freaked me out for a minute. I couldn't even write a letter. Like I was bawling like crazy because I didn't know what to say. But then I just remember like, Hey, you know, I'm here. I support you. I'm sorry. You know, that you went through this. Um, I'm sorry that, uh, that, that person did that to you, but love yourself. You know, you've became a better person because of it and understand it wasn't your fault. So I had to remind myself as you know, that it wasn't my fault. And I actually came out, um, we were watching, me and my grandmother were watching Oprah. This is weird. And uh, I saw another girl who'd been sexually assaulted by a family member. And so at 13, I had came out and told my grandmother, like, hey, that happened to me. And this girl's saying it's not right. But did y'all know this was going on to, with me? And she she was like, no, we didn't, we didn't know what happened. So me telling her and then nothing came out of it. I'm thinking he's going to get arrested. We're going to, you know, we're going to court. Nothing came out, out of it. So it was four or five years of being molested starting at age six by two family members and nobody's going to help me. So think about when the MST happened. That's another thing. I'm definitely not going to say anything because when I said spoke up, nobody listened, you know? So it was just that. And I think the healing moment, I addressed it with her again during the pandemic and I asked her why. Because it was something that I had to get off my chest. Why didn't you protect me? Why? And she said, I didn't know how to. I've never dealt with that, so I didn't know how to. And, and, so, and it I, becomes the family shame. Correct. And, correct. You know, and because uh, the family goes, well, if this happened to you, clearly it's my fault as the adult because mm-hmm. I didn't see it. I didn't protect you. So to, to protect their own ego, they keep their mouth correct. shut. Correct. And that's, and that's what, and you're true, that's what happened. And so it was most likable because, you know, everybody knew one of them was most likable. Everybody knew him, you know, so it was hard. And then now I'm moved back here and I have to face that family member. Um, So now I just I can't I just have to stay away because it triggers me again 
um, seeing him. Well, seeing both of them, but... Well, and for the people that don't understand, this isn't something that just happens to you as a child. You carry it for your whole life because it screws up your moral compass, the idea of right Mm -hmm. and wrong. Because when you're six or seven years old, like we were, um, Mm -hmm. it, it just your sense of right and wrong of appropriate and inappropriate. It's all thrown for a loop because Mm -hmm. the predator is always somebody that you trust and respect and look up to. Like they're Mm -hmm. not some evil goblin, you know, and it's because you trust them and, and like them and care about them and look up to them that if they tell you that, um, uh, that being touched is okay and is actually, you know, makes us even closer to each other, however mm-hmm. these groomers pitch it, uh, you, you believe them and you go, well, that's pretty fucking weird, but all right, and you mm-hmm. go along with it. So what this does to you later at life, it happened to you, it happened to me, it makes you it makes you totally susceptible to being to falling prey to a predator later on in life. Mm-hmm. I was raped at seventeen by a man. And mm-hmm. the, the the reason I didn't fight tooth and nail to stop it was because of my conditioning as a child. It's the same. Right. And that's it's it's sad. It's like you said, it just it's just repeated. It's and then you don't know how to, you're scared to love, you're scared to do these things. Like, it affects you. So it affects my marriage. It affects so much. It affects me parenting, you know. It, and I didn't realize how much it affected me. Um, and I was so, I was cautious of my son, you know. Um, I would, hey, anybody touch you? Do you do anything? I was very hypersensitive to him because I didn't know how to heal from it. So, yeah, it, 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 it messes with you a lot. It does. It does, and it becomes intergenerational. So mm-hmm. you have the choice, you know, be the cycle breaker, recover out loud, teach your kids, and don't let it happen again. You know, it's mm-hmm. the silence that empowers the um, the predators. When I say disin- um, sunlight is the best disinfectant, that sunlight is speaking. That sunlight is going, hey, this this happened, and you did that. To me, and that's not okay. Or, right. uh, or hey, this happens, and it happened to me. It, mm-hmm. it is, and when you, people are so terrified to recover out loud, to tell their story out loud, but when you do, it takes your power back. It does. It does. It, it, it feels like, okay, if I can say this, you know, I can, I can do anything. You know, it really does. Um, it was like a awakening moment saying, you telling my story. I was, you know, you were ashamed for so long and it was like, now I'm going out of my shell and saying, you know, this is wrong. And now you're realizing even though you weren't protected, you can protect somebody else. So I think that's the beauty of it. Like (laughs) fight, fight, just fight against it. Definitely fight against it. Well, if you don't, it'll be a cycle. The Mm -hmm. the, uh, family member that molested me, he was molested himself. And he passed it yeah. down. He passed it down the line. He thought that that was <laughs> that's what you do, and yeah. uh, so passed it down to me. And that's where the luckily it stops. Yes, and um, is able to break the cycle. Thank God. And mm-hmm. my kids know, you know. Uh, so by telling them, look, this is what happened to your dad. They are now rape proofed. Yeah. Because they will fight tooth and nail because they know right from wrong and uh, mm-hmm. and they know how a groomer operates. If you don't, 
Um, and that's what makes me so upset about uh, the Netflix series Cuties. The, the whole show, show is grooming. Uh, oh just horrific. Uh, you, you've not seen the show? or uh, no. So Cuties is all these um, little children beauty pageant. So hypersexualized seven-year-olds. Oh. Mm-hmm. You know, just um, drives me bonkers. And people think it's harmless. No, putting lipstick on a seven-year-old and and uh, having them doing, you know, Madonna poses, that is that is grooming. Yeah. Wow. That You're grooming that, them for rape. Yeah. And so many people out here just are predators. Predators are so big. Oh, my gosh. It's out here. It, it's disgusting. It's, yeah. And I even see it. There's a, I know there's another Netflix show um, where I think it was Thailand and some part of Africa where there were a lot of um, foreigners would come over and, you know, go visit the countries, but then they would bar their kids for three to four days. Yeah. And to me, that like killed me when I saw that. I had to turn it off because I was like, I can't watch that. Where a mother would actually give her child away to feed everybody. And, you know, you're, you're doing the same thing. You're prancing them around and, like Hydra, it happens in the States too. Uh, yeah. uh, listen to my episode with Craig Sawyer. He's a SEAL Team yeah. 6 guy. And uh, okay. yeah, it's between a 38 and $50 billion industry in the United States alone. Mm-hmm. Up to yeah, $50 billion. Yeah, and it's near a base. Dollars. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's by Fort Hood too. Yeah, near a base too in Texas. Yeah, they do it. it it's unbelievable. People do mm-hmm. rent out their kids. Uh, yeah. And as young as three years old. Yeah. You know. Uh, it's it's unbelievable, but it does bloody happen. And mm-hmm. uh, pretending that it's some QAnon shit, it's like no, this is real. Yeah, you know, it's real and it happens, and um, and a lot. Like your story, look how close your story is to mine. It's mm-hmm. it's not a coincidence. It's common. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and there's that's... and that the power of both of us saying it out loud. Hopefully somebody will put their hand up and go, oh, my God, me too. Yeah. Yeah. And it's sad. I hate I hate seeing it. It's just a cycle, a vicious cycle. So please stand up. I hate that we have to go through this. But Tell me about Vets Counseling Vets. Um, so Vets Counseling Veterans is a, a company that I volunteer with, and we talk about military sexual trauma. And so um, he – the owner, he was an old commander and he found me on uh, Facebook and reached out to me and um, he wanted a platform where everybody shares their story. And it was amazing meeting so many people who were MST survivors. And it's not just MST, it's suicide. Actually, people who committed um, one story was, you know, people who are military and their children have committed suicide or it was it's so much. So Veterans Council and Veterans uh, some of these are MST veterans who are now counselors. Um, a lot of people who are attempted suicide who are now counselors. So it's just a lot of veterans counseling and helping each other. So it's that peer support, that counseling uh, with people who have been through the same thing you've been, the same trauma um, or have been through trauma in general. The power of peer support, like we said earlier, is just so much. And a lot of people will say it's the most important thing because it, gives, it creates that connection. And mm-hmm. creates a connection, kills the stigma, and gets rid of the shame. And that's Correct. that's what peer support does. And there's so many groups out there. And for those that are either do not have access to or 
um, are just not ready for in-person peer support or via Zoom, that my show also fills that gap. Just listening to this conversation that you and I are having is peer support. Definitely. Definitely. Absolutely. Lakidra, I think we're about there, my friend. And mm-hmm. thank you so much for, for taking an hour to spend with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Please stand in line, Lakidra. We'll, we'll chat off air. Okay. You're listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. Hello, my friends. Thank you for sharing your time with me today. I hope you found value in today's episode. If you found this episode helpful, healing, or informative, please let me know by leaving a rating on either Spotify or Apple. And please share, share like the sugar bear on all of your social media channels. Because sharing is caring.